la 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 You're listening to Silver Threads, the podcast celebrating 25 years of the Hares and Hyenas bookstore in Fitzroy, Melbourne. Supported by the UNESCO City of Literature Known Bookshops Fund, in association with the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives, and in partnership with Melbourne Library Service. Warning, the following program contains explicit content and themes. Hello and welcome to episode three of Silver Threads. In this episode, we will again have the pleasure of hearing from Joan Nessel, proud out lesbian, spokeswoman for Butch Femme Desire and a tireless freedom fighter, a woman who laid the groundwork for the lesbian, gay and transgender movements of today by claiming her right to her own sexual identity at a time when to do so made her a figure of controversy. Hello everyone, this is session two in um, the recording studio with Louise, who I said is, is a sound engineer extraordinaire, and a great thank you to her for making all of this possible. And I'm going to continue reading from A Restricted Country that was originally published in the United States in 1987, in London in 1988, and has been translated. The latest next month is a Slovenian translation. So um, thank you to all those who work with my words. The piece I'm going to read now is called Liberties Not Taken. It's one of my controversial stories. Mac was a big man, a square-jawed engineer who built bridges and looked like he could shove them into place. He was lying stretched out on our couch with my mother sitting alongside him as if he were ill. I could tell she was impressed that a person such as he, what she called a professional, was listening to her. Standing quietly before him, answering his questions, and looking mainly at the soles of his shoes, I realized I had been summoned to pass some unknown test. His questions seemed to come from far away, and he barely moved his head to acknowledge that my voice was reaching him. I understood then that he was not ill, but that it was his power over us, the two women, that kept him so regally immobile. I did not know who he was or why he had this power, but I had learned by this my 13th year, 1953, that men were my mother's secret. After the interrogation, he asked me if I would like to spend a summer in the country helping his wife, Jean, care for their five children. A mother's helper, he said. I knew then some of the talk that had gone on between the two of them, the sad tale of our circumstances, my mother's worry that I was getting into trouble, I'd already been in a fight at school. Here was a chance for me to see what a real family was like. I accepted and prepared for a journey into other people's lives. Early the next week, we left for the cottage in a battered blue station wagon. I was packed in among the twins and the older boy and could barely hold my own among the tumbling duffel bags filled with T-shirts and sneakers. Mac and Jean were invisible to me, and I was not sure how I could help make some order out of this family chaos. The house was flat, with small rooms, musty and bare. Somehow it swallowed all of us up each night, and then in the day turned us loose on its screened-in porch and shaded lakefront. 
The first day Jean and I were alone with the children, I learned quickly that she knew exactly what she wanted from me. I was to help with the cooking and cleaning, and in the afternoons watch the kids as they played on the lake's edge. All of this was told me in a quick, crisp voice, while she never took her eyes off me, and then she said, want to swim. I followed her down to the lake, walking behind her tall, lean body, and quietly wondering at what was to come. She strode into the water, swam powerfully out to the floating raft, and ignoring the wooden ladder, hauled herself up. I was still knee-deep in the lake shallows, frightened by the muddy bottom. This was the first time I had felt dying leaves, soft sticks, and small shelled creatures under my feet. I kept my eyes on her as she looked toward me, and then she walked across the raft until she was balanced on the extreme edge facing the water. She raised her arms straight above her head, stood perfectly tall and still, a long, unbroken line, and then, almost too quick for me to be sure I had seen it, she sprang high up into the air and did a deep dive into the gray water. So clean, so sharp, so strong. I had never before seen a woman do such a thing, except for Esther Williams in the movies. I had known only the tired women of the cities, women like my mother, who dragged their bodies to work, stuffed them into two tight shoes and full-line bras. I knew women's bodies were for sex, but I did not know they could cut through the water or leap straight, straight up into the air. Jean surfaced not far from me, waved me on, and then walked quickly out of the water up the hill and back to the house. I stood silently, knowing I had seen a wonderful thing, knowing that a woman brave enough to do that was going to teach me things I would never forget. As the days went by, I washed the dishes, cleaned the little square rooms, tended the four boys and the little girl, who all had a California enthusiasm for the outdoors that left me exhausted, and most of all, listened to Jean talk. I learned that she had met Mac when she was in the waves, and that's the, the women's um, uh, military, and he was in the Navy. Even after their marriage, her favorite weekends out were with her women buddies spending long weekends in San Francisco bars. She had a special girlfriend, a woman who delighted in dropping her glass eye into her scotch and watching other patrons turn away in disgust. The eye would sit there in the amber liquid, staring up at them as the evening wore on. Eventually, Mac would storm into the place, drag Jean out, and fuck her hard that night, as if he could drive their deep women's laughter out of her belly. But Jean would keep returning to the bars and to her one special friend. Five children later, to save her from herself, Mac got a new job in New York, moved the family, and for a short time ended up in the same square, desolate housing development as we had. She told me these things as if I would understand them, and I did. She taught me to play poker and got angry when I made a mistake, but it was anger that made me feel proud. She let me drive the old station wagon down the dirt roads, and one night she took me to a drive-in and let me lie with my head in her lap and dangle my feet out the windows. She made me laugh until I couldn't stop, and looking down at me, she started laughing too. I felt it deep in her bones, 
She had no belly, just taut skin stretched over her bones. My head rolled with her laughter. Then I felt her hands on my face, on my hair, and a sweetness overcame me. I wanted never to take my head out of her lap, wanted her laughter pouring out over me for always, because with it came a caring and an indulgence, too sweet, too grand to let time take away. She introduced me to her gay nephew, who visited irregularly throughout the summer. Mac hated this young man who wore his suit jacket over his shoulders, smelled of perfume, and read Aeneas Nin. She arranged a date between us, and we sat in the borrowed car for a respectable amount of time before returning, aware that we were thrown together for a purpose, but not yet having words to share our longings. I didn't call myself gay yet. For three years, I had been making love to my best friend, Roz Rabinowitz, with my mouth, and I knew the word lesbian, but I was terrified of its implications and could not say it. With Jean, it was different. I was not afraid of being anything she was, except Mac's wife. We spent the long weekday nights playing cards with the older women who shared her cabin down the road. Every night before we went to bed, she asked me to massage her back. I would straddle her, marveling at her body that was her ally, her muscles lying lean on her bones. I longed to slip my hands around her, to catch her small pointed breasts in my hands, to extend the travel of my fingers down the small of her back to her buttocks, to slip gently into her, and to give her all the pleasure there was in my 13-year-old imagination to give. I wanted to lie beside her, hoping that she would wrap her long legs around me and carry me with her in her leaps for freedom. I never had the courage to do these things. I just whispered, I love you, as she stretched under my hands. When Mac arrived for the weekends, they moved into the double bed on the porch, and I could hear their arguments, hear Jean saying, I don't want to, leave me alone. Then I would hear her being fucked, a hard, rushing sound that silenced her. I wondered where the strength went that I saw all week, until I pictured Mac, a huge man who was sure he knew what was good for her. One weekend, after they had fought particularly hard, we were all in the lake together. I was out over my head, but I wasn't afraid because Jean was there. All of a sudden, Mac, whose head was only a few feet away from me, said, You've never been kissed by a father. I will show you what it's like. And he swam toward me, a large moving head with an open mouth and a power hidden beneath the surface. I tried to swim to land, but he grabbed me and held my head while he pushed his tongue deep into my mouth. I churned my arms and legs to keep from drowning. Finally, he let me go. I swam desperately for shore, not wanting to see Jean's face, not wanting to see her failure. I had been kissed like this before by the lonely fireman whose wife had just brought home their new baby. While she was upstairs showing it off to the other little girls, he sat beside me on the sofa, showing me a picture of a naked Hawaiian woman. Then he kissed me, pushed his tongue into my mouth. I was ten years old. And then again two years later, my mother's lover forcing me to give him a real kiss goodnight, the same tongue, this time joined by a knee between my twelve-year-old legs and his hands squeezing my breasts. 
and it was to happen many years later when a renowned young doctor kissed me in front of my woman lover to show me what I really needed. Always it was done to save me, to show me something I did not know, and always it resulted in near drowning. It was not that I lacked desire. I longed for Jean's lips, but because I did not tell her clearly that it was my yearning, my choice, my passion that wanted her, a 13-year-old knowledge that was deep and fine, she and I did nothing, and Mac kissed me and fucked her. As the summer wore on, Jean gave me more freedom from my chores, and I made friends with the teenage counselors who worked in the Jewish socialist camp a few yards down the lakefront. I quickly found myself in their world of summer camp romances. The summer was dying, and Stanley, the city college freshman who had become my half-hearted pursuer, convinced me to have a party on the beach near our cabin. It started late, a late summer night, a night of teenage scents, beers, cigarettes, scotch, of wet kisses, fumblings, twistings in the blanket, the fire blazing up, couples, the young men lying on the young women, rubbing their swollen needs. I did not want it and retreated from my young man to sit in the gently rocking canoe, knowing the summer was going to end and wondering if my deliverance would come. Stanley followed me, angry that I had deserted our chance to open our mouths to each other. I sat still in the night air, seeing his lips move but not hearing his words. My whole body was tuned for another sound. I knew she would come, and I wanted to show her I recognize my difference. I will bide my time until she touches me. I, were, I want her hands on me, her tongue in my mouth. I want to hold her head against me and throw my legs around her. And then I heard her canoe coming, the slow dipping of the paddle. I saw her flashlight search for me among the coupled bodies. Sooner than I thought possible, her light found me, and I saw her eyes dark in her small face. The others in the canoe sat in the shadows behind her, but she must have forgotten they were there. I answered her before she spoke. I am here, only talking, waiting. I would have killed you if you were there, she said, flashing her light over the entangled bodies as, as if she were a general, surveying a field of fallen opponents. No, Jean. You gave me the freedom to choose, but you feared that freedom more than you knew. I showed you in the best way I could that it was your touch I sought, and in the end all you could give me was a suspicion that I had not listened, had not heard your stories, not recognized your gifts of women difference. You heard their voices, not mine, because I was a girl woman, and it was a dangerous thing to touch me. And yet I had been touched so many times before by men who did not pause to think of innocence. Your touch would have healed me, but we had been judged unclean, and you would not harm me with the power of what they called our sin. The summer ended. My mother lost the apartment, and I went back to live with my childish aunt and uncle in their gray rooms. I never saw Jean again, but my mother must have, because she told me five years later that Jean was dead of breast cancer. My high, deep diver, I would have touched you so. This might be edited out, but what I want to say, a lot of the reason I wrote these stories, all of which are real, so, is that I wanted to counter the 
prevailing narratives of sexuality of all kinds, never to encourage uh, abuse of children, but to say that there are different desires, there are different histories, there are possible moments that also need to be put into the air. Okay, and then now to continue sort of the theme, I suppose, of women who shape my, my life, I'm going to read a piece called Two Women, Regina Nessel, 1910 to 1978, and her daughter Joan, 1940, and still going. When my mother died, she left me two satchels of scribbled writings. Many of these fragments were written on the back of long yellow ledger sheets, the artifacts of a bookkeeper. She had started writing in the last years of her life, sitting in apartments empty except for a bed, a television set, table, and two chairs. Dressed in a housecoat, her work clothes put away for the day, she would sit on the edge of the bed using the chair as her table. Scattered on one side of her would be the day's racing forms and OTB stubs, that's off-track betting. On the other side would be her writings. An overflowing ashtray shared the chair seat with her pad. And a few seats away, a few feet away, the television spoke to her, bringing the smooth voice of the public broadcasting system into the room. She would sit with her legs spread apart, her glasses low on her nose, a cigarette burning in one hand, and write messages to her daughter, her son, her lover at the time, or to the psychiatrist she had met at Bellevue when she was found wandering the city streets, not quite remembering who she was. Regina Nessel was born into a poor Jewish family in 1910 and raised in Manhattan. She left school at 14 to work in the Garmin district as a bookkeeper, married Jonas Nessel in 1928, was widowed in 1939, and left with a five-year-old son, Elliot, and a daughter yet to be born. Our family of three was pared down by the psychological dictates of the late 40s and early 50s. My brother, unhappy and confused by his father's death, screamed at his anger and frightening tantrums. Get him away from home, the doctor said, away from the family of women. From age 14, he fled our family. He entered the army at 16 to make the final break. Through the years, I too wanted to flee this woman whose passions overflowed, making whatever security we had achieved so impermanent. Her sexual longings, her uncontrollable gambling, her continuous need for money to stave off the eviction notices, the loans come due, the liens on her salary seemed to endanger my life. In 1959, I took refuge on the Lower East Side, where apartments were cheap. Over the years, I learned much more about Regina Nessel, about her strength, her ability to keep coming back, her laughter, and her courage. And then time collapsed. In 1978, she had a massive heart attack. She had been stricken just as I left for work. When she called the doctor, he told her to put herself in a cab, but she had no money, was unable to dress herself. So she waited those hours for me to come home. Again, it was just the two of us, with the same mixture of desperation and absurdity. I dressed her. I couldn't get an ambulance to take her to the hospital her doctor wanted. 
I hailed a gypsy cab, and we sped through New York. My mother was shouting, hurry up, please, hurry up, oh God, almost as if she was giving birth. And then I was standing by her bed in the hospital, stroking her cheek, telling her I loved her, taking her scribbled notes, begging for release from the respirator. She turned her face into my hand, and I realized how small she was, how my hand reached from her forehead to her chin, how alone we were, no husband, father, son, only me, her daughter, and when she could, Deborah, my lover. Ten days later, my mother died. The last time we saw Regina, she was sitting on the edge of our hospital bed, head bent, reading Deborah and me the poem she had written to thank the nurses for bringing her back to life. Why have I had to write about my mother's life, Regina's life? The rules she broke, the knowledge she had of her difference, the things she told me that mothers were not supposed to tell their daughters, as if she knew I needed this to survive in my life of sexual difference. All of this is one reason. And I wanted to give her a final gift, one she wanted desperately, that her writing moved beyond the bed and the chair. Finally, I want to take back something denied me by the medical and psychological world that told me my lesbianism was a sickness, that my feelings about my mother were distorted, infantile, mannish. I had run like my brother did, driven by the doctor's threats. Some will read this and say, no wonder she's a lesbian. This is the voice I have fought my whole life. It is for others that I write, in the hope that some part of this will make it easier for us to stop running. My mother was a bookkeeper. She had kept the books of men ever since she was thrown out of her, the protective circle of married women by the death of her husband in her 29th year, 1939. I was born five months after my father's death, death, so I never knew my mother when she was not the keeper of someone's books. The week before she died, in her 68th year, she had taken a part-time job keeping the books for two women weavers. She was sure this job would be different. And now in italics is from my mother's writing, and I'll, I'll signal that by saying Regina. Regina. Joe's death was quick, painful, and not merciful. He wanted to live. He was young, vital, had a son he adored, and a wife that sufficed. He tried so hard to survive, and when we parted at the hospital, knowing he could not make it, he asked me, how, how was I going to manage? I told him to let go. I would make it. But more importantly, his child and the child to come surely would. The last words between two who had created life. Joan was born five months later, and in those five months, all values, all images of family, of compassion were destroyed. The desertion by the families brought me to the realization that all were frightened people. I got along, and the coin of life was money. I accepted their law and rejected them. I picked up the challenge. The people I had contact with were mostly my own tribe, Jews, and I saw them battling the world to make it. Joan. In my early years, when we were still together, my mother would get up early every morning, put on a well-made dress and matching shoes, have several Chesterfields, cigarettes, and cups of black coffee. 
and then disappear out the door to go to the office. The office were powerful words. Two of the powerful nouns I grew up with, wholesale was another, a word that meant having something. My mother's clothes were bought wholesale. She bemoaned the fact that I was too fat for the small sizes that hung on the showroom racks. Other creatures that I knew by, the, by, the, by name were the line, the cutters, the showroom, and always the buyers. I had images of huge scissors hanging from the ceiling, long wooden tables, and the hulking figure of the buyer stalking through endless rooms of floating dresses. My mother was part of the long tradition of women who toiled behind the showroom in windowless rooms, behind desks piled high with blue ledger books and overflowing metal mail cages. She lived with invoices, yellow perforated sheets spilling out all around her like uncontrollable tongues. In the office, my mother controlled in and out the journeying of endless pieces of paper that meant money for the boss and survival for her. On the third finger of my mother's right hand was a bookkeeper's callus, a yellow raised hard cushion of skin formed by the pressure of her pen over the years as she listed figure after figure. The opposite of erosion, day after day, work had built up a plateau on my mother's hand. Regina. The garment industry is run by illusionists, magicians, panderers to the world. The buyers are prostitutes. Give them what will please their customers, you own them. Displease their customers, you have lost security. Season after season, I was part of the cycle. Saw the struggle, became part of it. Dipped into the excitement of money, power, physical attraction, adornment, flattery, sensuality. Sex was like afternoon cocktails, theater tickets, the black market bribery, the procuring of nylons, all trivialities but of paramount importance. You had something that someone else would not get. You had it made. It was easy and pathetic after paying off your first IRS man. That's the Internal Revenue Service. How sometimes I wish they would set me free. You see, I didn't have the strength to do it myself. I was guilty, and so was the world. They had no values, and neither did I, or so it seemed. I saw less and less of my children. I had a housekeeper, efficient. I was with the children on weekends. The total transition from one world to another began to show its effects. It became more difficult for me to live. The war, business, good food, clothes, even the beauty of the children were dim. Joan. The Bronx, 1948. My mother, strong and beautiful, stands in front of the foyer mirror, straightening the veil of a dark, smart hat in a checkered dress, perfumed. I sit on the floor looking up at her, knowing already in my little girl's head that this is a woman who is glorying in not being a mother, and also knowing she is preparing for lovemaking. The housekeeper who keeps me clean and fed sleeps with me while I lie awake, waiting for Regina to come home and take me to her bed, and always the dawn comes before she does. And then in a swirl of failure, for reasons not explained to me, it all changed. The hat disappears. The housekeeper no longer comes. Other caretakers keep me until my mother returns from work. 
I sit in other children's homes, on other couches, to watch them eat dinner, see two parents, who for a small fee will keep me until my mother comes to pick me up. The money has disappeared. The job is a grinding everyday ordeal. We are evicted from the Bronx apartment. A relative turns us away. We have no place to live. My mother goes to the Hotel Dixie, a cheap hotel in Times Square. I go to my Aunt Miriam and Uncle Murray in Bayside, Queens, to sleep on their gray couch in a hallway, grateful for the food and security, believing that I have terribly betrayed my mother. I wished for her alluring time to come again. Even at the end, when she walked Broadway in her bedroom slippers, I wanted to remind her of the veil with its black stars. I wanted the mother back who was a woman who did not want to be a mother. As soon as I was old enough, I went to the office with my mother on Saturdays. When I asked her why she had to work six days a week, she replied, the books have to get done. The books ruled her life like religious texts. They prescribed her actions and contained the mockings of her life. Before I was old enough to help her, she would give me pieces of paper to draw on, trying to keep me from my favorite toy, the metal racks with their iron wheels that I could ride across the wax showroom floors. Poor men still pushed these racks through the garment district's congested streets, their arms bulging with the weight of each season's new line. As I grew older, I would come to the office after school and sit watching Regina at work. How pr proud I was of this woman who could answer telephone calls, drink coffee, smoke a cigarette, turn the pages of her ledger sheets, and joke with her girls all at the same time. I was safe here, and so was my mother, I thought then. No eviction notices, no one calling her a whore, no bill collectors shining their flashlights through the windows. It was Regina holding the world together. At some point, she would take me around to meet everybody, the operators, the cutters, the shipping clerks, and finally, the boss. I knew it was very important that I be good on these tours, that I show the boss my mother could work a 50-hour week and still raise a good kid. Through the years and the jobs, the tours of introduction continued, but with some changes. I now knew my mother was sleeping with her bosses, and they and the women my mother worked with knew I was a lesbian. I no longer cared about being a good kid, but I did care about how shabby her office was and how she called the men who were fucking her mister. I lived with the garment industry the way other children live with grandparents. At age 11, I watched a call girl entertain a buyer and his drunken friends on an afternoon outing to a New Jersey beach. She sat, a beautiful young woman wearing a halter that fell low on her breasts, looking bored, waiting for one of the men to lurch up to her and take her into the tiny bungalow. I came closer to her and just watched. I wanted to break into her bored look, her placid tiredness, into the place that made her breasts swell. For one instance, before she disappeared for another quick lay, she looked back at me. I understood she was a working woman like my mother. The firm names of the garment industry were cute. Young togs, Mirabelle fashions, Wendy girl dresses. They masked the desperate battle to survive each year. Every house has a genealogy in the market. My mother knew their lineage like the back of her hand. 
One of her jobs was to check credit ratings in Dun and Bradstreet. For a long time, I thought this was a street out of a Dickens novel, a twisting narrow road where quaint characters sat in front of their shops shouting their worth. For 15 years, my mother worked for a firm called Bandana pulling her bosses through the black market years, those were the war years, making the figures tell lies that earned thousands for her firm. Bandana sounded to me like a name of a small country with shady beaches, a country that demanded complete dedication from its citizens. Why and how my mother left Bandana, I do not know, but it was the firm that molded her, sharpened her bookkeeping skills, and let her know the range of greed she would have to find room for on her ledger sheets. My mother, famous for her ability to pull the books together so the accountant had little to do on his yearly visit, laughed at the CPAs who made the big money while they marveled at her talent. The women were bookkeepers, the men were accountants. She taught me what a mixture of arrogance and failure her business world was, the class structure of its compact society with a factory shop at one end before they moved south and the showroom at the other. The bookkeepers lived in the middle, not good enough to walk through the showroom, but more powerful than the shop workers because they did the payroll and controlled petty cash. In later years, my mother tried to be a worker's fifth column. She fought the bosses for raises for her girls and ran interference for the shop workers who needed cash advances. It was a war fought by a woman against a man, the keeper of the books against the owner of the books. Like all those in bondage, my mother laughed at the master's dependency, at his vanities. She recorded his tax write-offs, his stealing from the business, his use of call girls to pleasure out-of-town buyers. While she was scorned as a social equal, she was feared as a woman who knew too much. My mother's whole life was marked by knowledge women were not supposed to have. Regina. Did I love my husband? Such a definite question. Who was this husband? I never considered the man who was the father of my children as my husband. I only knew the man. Did I love this man? Don't you see, doctor? If I could answer you in one word, yes, I don't think I'd have to be here. I remember as a little girl the impatience with my own youth. I recognized that I was someone, someone to be reckoned with. I sensed the sexual order of life. I wanted to be quickly and passionately involved. I recognized my youth only in the physical sense, is when I looked as when I looked at my own body, saw the beautiful breasts, the flat stomach, the sturdy limbs, the piquant face, the eyes that hid sadness, needed love. A hell of a lot of grit, and already acknowledging this is going to be one hell of a life. I was going to find the key. I knew the hunger, but I did not know how to appease it. I have not yet appeased it or reconciled myself. Therefore, doctor, did I love my husband? Yes, but not as I wanted to. But I was a good wife, a passionate wife, a fearing wife. This is Joan again. My mother always said she had to be a man in a man's world, but she wasn't. She was a different kind of woman, one for whom there was no vocabulary. She was a widow who, out of the necessity to support herself and her two children, developed a craftswoman's skill, the manipulation of endless figures. 
Her apprenticeship started in 1924, when she left school at 14 to work in a furrier's office. The boss, Jonas Nessel, liked the smart young girl and married her, but my mother was already damaged goods. In that same 14th year, she had been raped by a group of men, and a pregnancy had developed. She succeeded in finding a woman doctor who performed an abortion. My mother realized that Jonas would not marry her if he knew she was not a virgin. Desperate for her right to a safe life, she faked purity and managed to shed the right amount of blood. For a few years, my mother kept no books. She was the glowing young wife, and in a few more years, the mother of a son, Elliot. She had girlfriends with names like Yetta and Rose the Vegetarian went to Coney Island with other young couples, smoked cigarettes on the roof of her Bronx apartment house so her husband would not yell at her. But then came the night of pain, and Jonas, the strong young man, died. Regina. I started high school in a ball of fire with my twin sister. I believe we were godsend. It was conveyed to us by the teachers, by our mother, dressing us alike. All external, you know. Doctor, it was all bullshit. I never felt it. I was angry. I was unique. My twin sister Miriam had infantile paralysis at the age of of three. Her lack of activity became my way of life. I sat. I knitted. I read. If I did anything physical that she could not, I felt I was a selfish, selfish, ugly kid. Then I rebelled. At 14, I left school and went out into the business world. At 14, I had my first sexual relationship. And this is Joan, her daughter. Oh, my mama, the things you'd like to do, fuck and suck cock. One customer knocked your teeth out, but you would not let your woman friend in to help you because he might come back and she would get hurt. So you lay in a pool of blood and teeth until the police broke the door down. You were evicted once again for being an undesirable tenant. You went downhill fast from quiet dinners with your bosses who bedded you in time to be home for Shabbos, to the merchant marine who doused himself with your perfume while you knelt between his legs and threatened to kill you every week if you didn't turn over your paycheck. Oh, Mama, the things I saw and the things you did. No wonder you are a lesbian, they will say. No, the wonder is my mother who taught me when to go on my knees and when not, who kept alive her right to sexuality when sex was killing her. Regina. Jean, that was my mother's name for her written self, was a misfit, but she didn't know it. At the age of 14, dark-eyed, short, a beautiful pair of breasts, a good behind, dimples, a Jewess, hot in the pants, that was the description. Almost perfect for a fine Jewish boy to have sport with, his kind, her kind. Only there was something wrong Obviously a good lay, but inside thinking this was a way to reach life. Where else to seek but from the men she had access to? She knew one individual man, her father. Jean saw him as a flat surface, no dimensions. He ate, he gambled, he never reached out except to touch her breasts once or twice, slyly to be sure, a loving fatherly gesture. Jean knew the man was on the make. Rockaway. This is Brooklyn, 1924, a gaudy summer resort. Jean was there to take care of her oldest sister's child. The deserted beach was her retreat, 
The ocean was her savior. She could see a great span of space. She was not aware of the beach or the waves touching the shore, retreating flirtatiously. Only the horizon, the escape, no buffeting, no challenge, just space. Jean knew the loneliness, always knew it, but did not recognize it. So when this beautiful young man came to sit by her in the evening twilight with the beach deserted, he unknowingly joined her in her quest. He was about 25, curly, hair, blue eyes, stocky build, good-looking. A pretty girl alone, how come? Just watching, Jean's voice was muted. The challenge had come. A young man was seeing her. Jean watched herself as a warmth crept over her body. Her dimples were showing. She thrust her body forward to accentuate the outline of her breasts. Jean was going to make it. Joan. My mother's legacy to me was the story of her desire. She has left sexual trails for me, private messages, how she saw her breasts, how her body swelled with want. She has also left the record of her anger, her fury at herself and others for forgetting the connection between generosity and lust. She never knew whom to blame for her sexuality, for the rape, because the voices around her said her hunger deserved punishment. 42nd Street did not scare or repulse her. It reminded her of empty beds. My mother feared and hated the women who, from the comfort of their marriages, called her whore. But she also knew on her own body, carried in her soul, the scars of sexual abuse. My mother accepted the fact that desire had made her homeless. Regina. One night, about two months later, he invited me to a party. I went with fear, not trusting the man I loved. Yes, I thought I was in love. You know the saying, when you've had one, you had them all. Well, that's what happened to me that night. He passed me on to his friends, three and all. I wonder to this day how many of these men, I am sure now successful, ever think of that night and the complete frustration they had. I did not move. I disconnected from myself, from my body, froze my mind. I was considered a lousy lay by the three. Were they cool? They were young men who thought the world was theirs. I went home. He took me to my door at six in the morning. Not a word did I say. My mother and father were waiting. My father started to call me all the vile words he knew in English, my mother quietly stated she controlled the children. She would mete out punishment if necessary, and that would be the final word. When we were alone, she asked me if I was all right, told me if I was pregnant, I would not be alone, kissed me, and told me to go to bed. Never again was the incident brought up. God, did I need help. I would not accept the tangibles, the penis, the vagina as a way of life. Necessary, yes. I treated the physical as the entry to the man as he entered me. Doctor, this one experience now haunts me, and I seek the answer. Was I the victim or the stimulus of the event? That evening of the rape, I came away still young, still desiring the beauty of a sexual relationship. Frightened of words, not being able to express the experience. Afraid to admit that there existed in men such cruelty. I buried the truth. 
I live the lie that men do not and cannot perpetrate evil. Love is all pervasive. Cruelty does and did exist, but the people were sick. But in my life, despair took over. Doctor, I still believe the lie that human compassion, humble awareness, is the only common sense. Joan. Our love affairs collided as we grew older. Once, when I needed her solace because I was losing a woman I loved deeply, I walked the 80 blocks between our apartments to find her sitting in her slip with her boss and lover, Mr. Ulano. He sat across from her in his short sleeves and suspenders in the formal, intimate way I had come to know as your post-lovemaking demeanor, demeanor, as her post-lovemaking demeanor. I could not speak to you then. Mother and daughter were each pursuing illicit loves. I never thought you saw my need of you, but I was wrong. Regina. June 27, 1970. I saw Joan today, and it was a portent of all things to come. She was going to the coast for two months. Afraid to say goodbye, she called and said she didn't have the time to see me. I wished her a good trip. She called five minutes later to tell me she would stop by for a very short time, a minute or so, so full of love and guilt, not knowing how I feel, speaking trivialities when my heart is screaming out to her, take care, take care. I love you, my dearest. God, may, me, may she always see her way and not despair. Shedding her responsibilities, her work, headed like a child to her fun, knowing she deserved it. She removes herself when she thinks she will hurt. Can I show less courage and integrity than she? The daughter becomes the teacher, the mother the student. Joan. Sometimes all we have to give each other is words. We hoped the cracks would not go deeper, but they did. The bosses never left their wives. They never solved my mother's financial problems. But at least the office where my mother lived most of her life was emotional territory, an erotic home where praise for business skills was given with a wink of appreciation for her sexual abilities. She, diffu she diffused their power by fucking them. When she left, she made sure their books were in good order. At some point in the early 50s, it all began to drift away. The weekly subpoenas would be jammed into her bag, unopened. I lived waiting for the legal explosions. They came, but never blew her entirely away, just piece by piece. In 1958, when she discovered me in bed with a woman lover, she gave me an ultimatum, leave the house or see a doctor. She knew seeing a doctor was not going to be my choice. She kicked me out of the house, and I became part of the torrent of the 60s. It was the right time for me. I could use all she had taught me, all I had witnessed, my anger at bosses, at the finger-waggers who called her whore, at the secure who flourished in streets of pain, at bigots who locked restaurants and school buildings. My queerness rode with me on freedom rides and walked the miles between Selmer and Montgomery, and Montgomery, helped swell the ranks of the peace marches, protested the sheltered drills, sat with me in front of the House on american Activ Activities Committee as we applauded and exhausted Joanne Grant while one of the senators called us the scum of the earth. And while I marched and chanted, my mother worked day by day to keep herself alive. Regina. 
December 29, 1969. I'm drunk. I'm listening to the hilarious news on television. More drafties, more killings, more injustice. I can't hold on much longer. Is it my own unhappiness? I'm not as holy as I wish to think. I hate the man I love. I hate myself for loving him. I hate his values, his estimation of who you are, how good is your credit, how much money do you have. I have no money, no position. I live week by week, salary by salary, hate my work, hate what kept me alive. I could have gone on if I was able to give and receive love. So you say, what the hell do you want? So I didn't get it. So I didn't deserve it. So I didn't play the game. So they didn't play the game. Only fucking, literally and figuratively, is the whole game. Do it well and you will be a success. Do it with your heart and call it love. Be sure you will get a good fucking. I am sick of my body demanding the touch of love. Sick to my soul of all the ugliness. Come on, youth. Fight with all your weapons. Save this world for yourselves. We have only garbage. I am part of it. Dump us, burn us, but don't become one of us. Be humble to your own. Give yourselves love. We won't recognize it. Joan. I had to wean myself away from expecting love administered in the custom of the families around me. My mother never taught me how to be a lady, how to brush my teeth, or the right way to wipe myself. She never passed on recipes or fashion hints or her favorite brand of lipstick. She never told me to get married or to go to college. She did pay a man to fuck me to see if I was a lesbian. She was drunk when she arranged it, but I think she was not ashamed of her attempt. She needed to know if I, too, could be a good lay. I was, Regina, with the women who made me feel beautiful. She taught me how to search her search out live knit eggs that clung, clung to the bottom of my hair and cracked their small white bodies between my nails. She taught me laughter and endurance and the right to passion. She taught me the absurdity of power when it is used on the powerless. Regina, December 29, 1969. 1969. I was born, given a name, parents, made the best of it. I was a wife who could not follow the beaten path, always hungering for an answer. I was a mother, a sick mother, but a mother. I gave birth. The physical event was not important, but I loved another human being. Not the right, right outlook for a mother, so I'll ask that up. But by God, I love these adults, not because I am a mother, but I see them struggling to gain identity. Regina, the woman, who the hell is she? In bed, terrific, so I am told. A good lay is still a good lay, regardless of what causes the good fucking. How lonely is all the play acting? What do I need to make me whole? Joan. What do I do with this legacy? A mother who wills me her, vicious, her, her views on fucking, her despair, her outrage. Her rebellion outlasted those of Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and Elridge Cleaver. She just got tired. The days of work did not stop, and she was no longer the boss's best friend. Elliot and I started getting telephone calls. Bail me out. I need mommy, money. Come get me. She would go for long periods without telling us where she was working. 
Then I would get a frantic call from Miriam, her twin sister, asking me if it was true my mother was a prostitute. When the calls from her finally came, they showed me the worlds of humiliation in which she had learned to survive. The residential hotel that evicted her, from which my lover and I had to rescue her clothes. I introduced myself as Regina's daughter, and they told me to wait outside. They wheeled out a dirty laundry bin, trailing her stockings and underwear on the street. We scooped up handfuls of her clothes and stuffed them into suitcases. The tape recorder I had given her to help her with her writing had disappeared. Soon the trail she left behind grew smaller and smaller. Each eviction pared away her possessions. The final time I picked up her pieces was in the green-walled basement of the hospital where they had put her suitcase, and I found myself touching her shit. My last gift to her, a green bathrobe covered with her final fear. They had carefully placed it in a plastic bag and laid it on top of her writings. For one moment, the whole world smelled of shit. And then I realized it was only the bathrobe, and I threw it in a garbage can. Regina, an open letter to my children, 1969. You, my son, visit, visit the old neighborhood, the apartment house. Peer through mailboxes looking for familiar names, looking for your innocence, your dreams. Do not let memories dim, dim the present or the future. You, my daughter... Love yourself. You are worthy. Bear no guilt. Out of sorrow, you have created love and compassion. I, too, sought the old home, saw two small children look at me with confidence and love. I see you both, and now I see the present, the anger that shields your love, my life entwined with yours, part of the memories. Now that you are both grown, and I am deep in middle age of life, I know that we are richer for all our hurts. What you will be will encompass all memories. We three who love each other very much. Joan. From the Lesbian Activist section of the Gay Activist Alliance newsletter, April 1973. This is a quoted article. Blessed be the mothers of the lesbian nation. February 4th, 1973 marked perhaps the beginning of a new stage in the lesbian movement. The Lesbian Liberation Committee sponsored a panel called Mothers of Lesbians, which proved to be one of the most exciting and hopeful lesbian discussions presented at the firehouse to date. Joan Nestle's mother made a very moving statement about Joan as a person, a beautiful person whose choices could only be good ones. Joan. Twice my mother stole from her bosses, once out of desperation and the second time out of terror. When she stole for herself, she stole badly and was caught both times. By now, my mother's world was slipping away. She couldn't control the numbers or the men anymore, but she fought back with all the magic of her bookkeeper's language. Regina, October 15, 1976, Mr. Brenner, her boss. I received the subtle threat addressed to my children with regards to my misdeeds, which incidentally you were aware of, aware of as far back as two and a half years ago. I did not at any time cover or manipulate your books to hide the deficit. 
I am not pleading my case. As a matter of, as a matter of fact, part of my healing is admitting, admitting to improper behavior. But for you to assume a holier-than-thou moral judgment is laughable. The powerful have the right, your philosophy. Now to the settlement of the debt. There are discrepancies, and I shall enumerate. According to my records, the $800 given back to you from my bonus seems not to be credited to my account. I may be in error, and the only way this can be proven is to send copies of my earning sheets of 1974 and 1975 showing deductions from my income to be credited to indebtedness and judgments against my salary. As to the $60 for dresses that you list, I paid the sum to your former colleague, Johnny. You remember him, your dispenser of checks. I am being sardonic and humorous, poor soul. He thought he had it made, don't we all, including you. I am sure I'm not intimidating you, and it is not my style, as I am accountable for my actions as you, as you are for yours, and I do believe in justice." However, you better believe that all correspondence now in the future directed to my children shall possibly be a heartache to you. My sins are mine, period. I am enclosing herewith a money order for $75, which you, you will be receiving every month until the indebtedness is paid. But I must insist upon receiving the papers requested. In the event you do not accept these terms, I shall return to New York, and you shall determine your method of justice, and I shall pursue mine. Joan. Now even the dresses must be accounted for. No longer does your body soften the edges between the boss and you. You use the language of business, its herewiths and the aboves, to fight desperate battles. I also fight back on your behalf, tired of the years I had to be a good girl in front of the bosses. This is Joan, September 17th, 1976. Dear Mr. Brenner, I am sending you my mother's address, but first I want to say some things. My mother helped in paying back the $3,100. She is now living on Social Security with my brother in California. My mother has worked her whole life primarily for one thing, to raise her children with dignity. She did, she did this alone, working in small rooms, taking care of the boss's books. The years of loneliness and frustration did not produce an always sensible, rational woman. When she committed these improper actions, she was ill, ill with a life of struggle and loneliness. The money went to a man who regularly threatened to kill her. I look at my mother now, and I love her. Sometimes she is crazy, but she has worked a lifetime in a business world that never saw her as an important person in a man's world where she serviced her bosses, lied for them, cheated for them, saved on taxes, off the books, on the books. I don't know if this letter makes sense to you, but I had to write it. Much more was taken from my mother than she ever took. Someday the world will be different, Profits and business will not be based on the lives of less powerful people, particularly women. My mother has my everlasting honor and respect. Joan, in the present, I am not a mother, she would say. I am Regina, a woman. 
always, always, that would be her cry. And when she came to me for money, I did not have. Or because her lovers brutalized her. Or when she lost her job, I wanted to cry. But mother, I'm not a daughter, just a woman. Please leave me alone. I don't know when my mother started gambling, but the racetrack and later on OTB were as necessary to her as lovemaking. Driven by loneliness, my mother pushed herself into unwomanly territory. She rode the lonely people's bus, scrawled her figures on any available piece of paper in her purse, and usually lost. She stood in small gatherings, feeling the warmth of nightly comrades around her, people like herself who needed to win and should have won, and yet who knew that just by being there they were already losers. Sometimes she took me, and I hated it all. All I saw was Regina surrounded by shabby men, Regina being an expert, once again using magic numbers to win, war win warmth, and always it seemed to me Regina losing. I watched with fury as rent money disappeared under the grill, transformed into small dull tickets like the thousand others scattered on the stained concrete floor. I thought my mother's money should be spent on food and shelter. I did not know her fury at the money she was forced to make, her refusal to accept the tedium of her life by doing the right things with it. In her last year, she would flee the apartment Deborah and I had furnished for her, heading to the OTB location across Broadway. She would stand there, cradling her pocketbook under her arm in a light blue coat, a small woman once again surrounded by men. My mother... Regina. The bus awaits. This is going out to the racetrack in Long Island. The bus awaits. The program is bored. Away we go to glory or to doom. It doesn't matter. We are where the action is, the comradeship, the sympathetic year, the boast of winning the day before. We look at each other almost lovingly. We all protest. We are not compulsive gamblers, but we do not confess the need for ties that have meaning. We are not missed any place, or on the bus because we have no other place to go. The prostitute is there to reap from the men their rejuvenated masculinity. The women no one needs is there hoping for a crumb of attention. Maybe she will be acknowledged as a good tipster. There is no sex. We reach the bus. The evening is over. Some think about the lonely trip. What the hell am I doing here? Others hate themselves and hate the world. Others boast of their winning and hurt their comrades. All agree it's a crooked game. Joan. All of it. It was your loneliness I could bear the least. You who wanted touch so much became so diminished in your passions. I always saw you coming home from work so tired, so burdened, I wanted desperately to be able to call in from the other room your young husband full of strength and safety. Then, as I grew older, I wanted you to accept my love, but you did things your own way, like a tenacious farmer chopping earth away from stone. Regina. I met him on the bus coming home from the track. I was terribly depressed, not because of losing, but from the sheer terror of spending an evening without any personal contact. He sat down beside me, even though there were many empty seats. Casually glancing at him, I got the impression of a man in his middle forties, 
a strong-featured man with a brooding face, hunched shoulders, a big man. He asked me how I made up, made out. <laughs> I told him indifferently that I had lost a little. The conversation became dulcetory until I heard him say he had just returned from Vietnam. I reacted immediately, wanted to know more. I found out he was on a warship delivering war materials. On hearing his version of the war, I dubbed him a reactionary, but what the hell, he was somebody to talk to. We got off the bus at 42nd Street. He indifferently asked me if I would care to have a drink. We went to a bar across from where I lived, and I proceeded to get cockeyed drunk, left myself wide open for whatever would happen. Do I sound unemotional about it all? Did I know this man was to offer me a challenge? Yes, I knew from the beginning. I knew he was a loner. I knew he needed human contact, but so did I. Thinking that I could help myself by reaching out, I reached out, loaded, angry, crying. I brought him up to my apartment. We clung together. I fell asleep in his arms, not knowing his name, not caring. Joan. I remember the night in Flushing when you came home drunk. We were all waiting for you, Uncle Jack, your most devoted boyfriend, Mabel Hampton, waiting to be paid after a long day of work, Susan, my first woman lover, and myself. You came in staggering and saw, saw us all staring at you with worry. You started throwing money at us, shouting that it was all Regina was good for, all we wanted you for. You collapsed on the couch, and when I bent over you, you grabbed my arm and started kissing it, feverishly telling me I was the only one who understood. Susan ran out the door, frightened by the chaos. Mabel told me, go after your woman, I'll take care of Regina. I did. I fled from the knowledge that you hated me for being another waiting face and that you loved me for being the one closest to your torment. I started work at 13, and I never took money from you, but I wished it was not me that you had to come home to. When I walked in countries you had never seen, had years of peace with my lover Deborah that Jonas did not live long enough to give you, I measured my freedoms against your servitude. The day you died, I told you you would not have to work anymore. You called Rose, your enduring friend, to tell her that your child had freed you. May 7, 1977. Regina, Joan dear, your birthday. My celebration of the beautiful gift I received on Mother's Day 37 years ago. When I held you in my arms and you were not more than three hours old, and you looked up at me with your glorious blue eyes. They did not wander or flitter as most babies do. The bond was made, and if it seems at times the communication is weak, the compelling tie of love and devotion, recognition, strength was there. My love is so great that to see you face to face I would become emotional. Just today, I want to say that for always your love has been my greatest gift. You made me a beautiful person in my eyes, for which I say thank you for being my daughter. December 26, 1978. Mother, today I brought you Colette and Willa Cather, whom you wanted to read, but I know you will not be able to. You are lying on your deathbed, plugged into small television screens. 
that record in orange lines when your heart bleeds or screams or stops. Since Tuesday, you've been a captive woman. When I was very small, lying in a hospital bed, scared and wanting you there all the time, I remember you standing above me dressed for business, a working woman who could not miss a day. You looked down at me and said, don't worry, I'll be here. Later, when you thought I was asleep, you called your boss to apologize for being late and to say you would be in soon. We both knew you could not stay. Now I cannot see you. You lie in the most critical bed, a place of honor. I look down the long blue corridor. Yellow lights shine at the end, and white coats swing as they go in and out of your room. You waited for me to get home from work before you would accept your heart attack. You waited for your working daughter. I found you dying, and now I go to work every day before I come here. In every hour, I have ten minutes to give you my love. Your eyes beg me for help. You are tired and in pain. You write me a note. Death would be a treasure. The machines are pumping at you. Liquids are flowing in. The doctor turns down your stained sheet to show me the heat burns from the electric shock, but all I can see is your pink nipple.